inhabitants past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You're with 3CR Radio this morning on 855am. Or maybe you're listening on the web somewhere at 3cr.org.au or on digital radio at 3CR Digital. Stay with us. We've got Shane McGrath from the Housing for the Age Action Group. And Shane, before I raise a couple of things, have you got anything you want? I imagine at the moment Housing for the Age is uh, is working in lockdown, which must make it pretty difficult for you. Well, yeah, I'm recording from my bedroom right now, which has been my office for a little while. The, uh, you know, but but we're still providing the services that we we need to provide to people. Um, I mean, I certainly have some things that I want to talk about, which might be on your list already. Uh, I guess the the first is the the failure of the Victorian government to reintroduce the eviction moratorium and other protections that uh, Victorian renters had during the lockdowns last year. Uh, is that something that you'd be interested in talking about? Well, it is. It's one of the things, obviously, to talk about. That's right. Yes. Yeah, so talk about it. Yeah. So last week, it was actually my birthday when the government announced there would not be another eviction moratorium. Oh, look, happy moratorium. birthday, Shane. Yeah. Happy birthday. Sorry we, we couldn't have had a glass, bottle of red with you, but um, we, oh, will, we might next time. Next, next time. Yeah, we're all still here. The, um, <laughs> we could still be in lockdown next time, of course, but let's hope not. Sounds about right. The, um, yeah, so for my birthday, the Victorian government announced that there would be no further protections for renters. Um, there is a scheme to provide... Uh, one-off rental relief grants of $1,500 that are pretty narrowly targeted and really pretty inadequate for anyone who, who does meet the eligibility criteria. Um, just quite incredible to me that, you know, the renters in Victoria, renters on low incomes in Victoria, renters who've lost wages due to COVID and lost hours, are in a worse position now than they were last year when we had, you know, measures like the the COVID supplement to job seeker, we had job keeper payments, things like that. Uh, now the job seeker rate is down to a, a much more inadequate level, uh, closer to pre-pandemic. And the Victorian government, which last year, you know, went to some trouble to protect renters from eviction due to COVID, has just said, "Oh well, we uh, we just hope landlords will do the right thing." Yeah. It's, it's relevant to this, obviously, is there's been quite a scream from the the retail tenant areas uh, that retail landlords, the government should make make some sort of provision for retail landlords, give concessions to their, their retail renters, but there's been no mention at all anywhere, as you say, of giving support to residential renters. Yeah, I, I mean, the... The government seems to think that the, you know, the rental reforms that they passed that came into effect in March this year will be adequate to protect renters, but we just know for a fact that they are not. You know, VCAT has, has established that it believes it is reasonable and proportionate to evict renters, uh, if they've fallen into rent arrears because of COVID, uh, because they, you know, because they lost wages, because they lost income, because they can't afford to pay the rent. That, those are specifically the renters that the eviction moratorium was supposed to protect. And to say now, we just hope that landlords will do the right thing, it is just to guarantee that more Victorians will be evicted into the pandemic. Mm. Even after the last 
lockdown, when that when those concessions were lifted, there were reports that some landlords were suddenly trying to get all sorts of back rent off people and putting them under even more pressure than anyway um, earlier this year. Are you have you seen signs of that? Oh yeah, I mean that's exactly what I mean. VCAT has, you know, has said those, those old protections from the eviction moratorium do not apply. Um, the the rent arrears that you accrued while you're protected from from eviction, you are liable to pay now, or you can be evicted. Um, yeah, it's bloody dreadful, isn't it? Really, and uh, and we see, and in fact, there's. I was going to raise later with the public housing people, but. Uh, there's been stories of late that urging urging investors to get in now to the property market because rents are rents are soaring and it's a late great time to get in and 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 enjoy the soaring rents. So while there's no protection for renters, rents are are rising quite substantially. Well, that that can't be right because the government thinks that landlords will do the right thing. So I'm sure you must be you must have your your facts wrong there. I'm sorry. Yeah, look. Now, these new investor landlords will be investing so they can do the right thing by tenants. I've got no doubt about that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, VCAT's published some figures about the, the number of eviction applications that came through in the month after the, the eviction moratorium ended, just a massive amount. And that, that's only going to increase. We're only going to see more evictions. Uh, and at the same time, you know, the age is reporting that tenants can't get their bond back, that delays are, are effectively indefinite where tenants apply to get their bond back or, or to assert their rights in other ways. The uh, the, the system is, is turning into a disaster for renters, uh, yeah. even more so than it normally is. Is this being reflected, Shane, in the in the work you're doing, in the people contacting your office? The uh, I mean, I guess it's varied quite a bit. Our client group tends to be people who are on age pensions. Now, that, that's not across the board. So so for the most part, their income is less affected by things like COVID lockdown. Uh, but certainly we see lots of older workers who are still, you know, in the workforce, um, often doing sort of contract work or casual work and things like that, whose wages have been very severely affected by the lockdown. And, yeah, that, that's driving a lot of a lot of need in the community. Yeah, another factor that's come up recently is uh, mainly out of New South Wales, but it also applies down here. Uh, the demand for charity food. Apparently, they can't even queue up with the demand up in New South Wales at the moment. Well, you know, not 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 long ago, just around the corner from where I live, the uh, the police shut down the queue for food bank because there were too many cars now blocking the Westgate. <laughs> yes. Well, they closed out another one in the city last weekend at the State Library as well. I was going to raise that later. But, uh, again, another food bank was closed down because they didn't have a Melbourne City Council permit, yet they'd been doing it for ages. Mm. And suddenly they were – and they said they – you know, the large number of people use it every weekend, but they were closed down. So there's cruelty on top of uh, inadequacy, apparently. Yeah, it's just hopeless. Yeah. Uh, well, the other factor on that is that uh, and it's it's quite disturbing in in light of the number of people who obviously are, uh, are getting pretty desperate. Uh, that that investment bank Bowen Joey's done a, done a survey that shows that grocery and food prices are going to increase um, higher than they have for about ten years very shortly due to factors including COVID. There's a few other factors in there, but that um, we're going to going to, in the next few months, cop massively high food prices. So this is just going to exacerbate the problem. Yeah, and I mean, you know, again, just looking to a a federal government that just shows no interest in, uh, you know, 
raising unemployment benefits or other kinds of welfare above the poverty line or even to the poverty line, even to the point of waving at the poverty line, um, the, these sorts of increases are just disastrous for older people, for older renters and for, for other members of the community. Yeah. And how are you operating at the moment? I mean, how do people get in contact and how can you, how do you, can you help them stuck in lockdown in a sense? Yeah, I mean, people can still call us up on the same phone numbers they've always been able to call us up on. Uh, so if you've got your pen and paper, that's 1300 765 178. Uh, if you're an older Victorian with a housing issue, uh, I'll give that out again in just a sec if you want yeah, to we'll give that out again. Paper. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the phones now divert. They get sent to our, to our mobile phones in our, in our home offices on, on a roster. Uh, you know, you can talk to me in my bedroom while I peck away at the laptop. Um, <laughs> yep. yeah, but we're, we're making do. And the outreach workers are, you know, they're essential workers that they are still able to meet people, although obviously with, you know, some COVID safety measures in place. Yeah, good. So, oh, that's, that's excellent. And, and you can help them from there, obviously, otherwise you wouldn't be doing it. Yeah, I mean, a whole lot of procedures, you know, in different parts of the government have become more effective and more efficient uh, with COVID, you know, things that had to be done on paper or in person before the lockdown because nobody could be bothered to update their systems uh, now apparently can be done virtually, can be done digitally, you know, uh, and it's much better for, for a lot of the, the ordinary renters who, who access these systems. I'm thinking about things like public housing applications and sign-ups, uh, VCAT applications and hearings, uh, a whole lot of things across the board. Yeah. And recently we, the government's been announcing um, some new initiatives in what they're calling social and community housing, but all of it, all of the money seems to be going to what are effectively private, some not for profit, but private organisations. So it's that old story again where money that ALG is going into, into so-called public housing, in fact, is not going into public housing. Yeah, I, I mean, any time the government's talking about funding for social housing, what they're really talking about is defunding public housing, you know, in real terms. Uh, and we've talked yeah. we've talked about that a lot on this show. And I, we I'm have, sure and it, it, the, it just goes on and on. But they, they they announced a new community one just last week, and I noticed that that there were three or four bodies named in the Community Housing Association all saying about the need when people need this and it's a wonderful thing. But again, it's going into their into their hands and it's not actually going to end up as public housing anyway. And some of it's going to, in fact, be be leased out the long term to people um, virtually virtually buying them anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, the, we've talked about this a fair bit, and I bet some of the uh, some of the other guests on the show today will have more to say about it. So I, I might leave well, it I'm there. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. <laughs> but but also at the same time as at the end of the scale we're talking about, you've got advice for people, as I say, to get in now as investors. There was a headline recently about massive profits that can be made at the moment in real estate. Get in there, um, and Stockland um, is prepared to spend $500 million plus acquiring what they're calling the um, homes in the baby boomer market, which is the sort of people um, Housing with the Aged Act, deal, uh, Act deals with, of course. And also, there have been moves to invest in housing for, dis for people with disabilities, um, money coming in through the NDIS, of course. But again, they're prepared investors, the big companies are prepared to put millions or billions, in fact, in this case, uh, into housing. So they obviously see profit in some of these areas that we see major problems in. 
Yeah, I, I mean, what they're talking about there is just a direct transfer of money from from the public to the private sector, right? Like that, that's taxpayer money that that they're redescribing as their their private profits. Yeah, and in fact, um, Linda Reynolds, the government services minister, she she talked about the potential for this housing, this is the disability housing, to make it into a $12 billion social impact asset class. So she's actually calling it an asset class rather than a desperate need for people who need housing that, that suits their needs. Yeah, I, I mean, it's. I think it's well established at this point that the, the, these things fail. Like, there's always someone who's got a new idea or, you know, sorry, new idea in quote marks about how to make a profit off of providing housing to people on low income or, or people with other sorts of needs. But they, these systems just don't work. What, what has worked is public housing. And what we see the government doing over and over is trying to figure out a new way to give money to the private sector to do what public housing does well. And this, it fails again and again, and they keep trying again and again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and indeed, there was a, uh, there's a conference being held, in fact, today, uh, sponsored by, um, a number of people in the, in the, in the industry, of course, and also the financial review called a property summit. And they say, riding the real estate rebound, the speed and extent of Australia's housing rebound underpinned by cheap credit and government stimulus has surprised many. Join the property industry's most influential leaders, investors, commentators and disruptors as we dissect the issues facing the sector and identify new opportunities in real estate investment. Um, and it's today, and of course all the big companies are there, Meriton, Harry Trigivoff, uh, Charter Hall, Mervac, Stockland, Centre Group, Dexter, you can just go on. They're, they're, they're all speaking there and all taking part, and the only one that could even be remotely considered to have any sort of social content might be the head of property for Australian Super, but that doesn't count for much either. But it's yeah. just a conference of the super-rich uh, property sector working out how to make more money out of it. Yeah, I mean, I probably misspoke a minute ago. You know, I, I said that these attempts to to privatise the provision of housing for low-income people had failed. But like you say, it's a boom time for housing investment. It's pretty much always a boom time for housing investment in Australia. These things haven't so much failed as ways to provide low-income housing as that they've succeed as ways to radically increase the, the profits of housing investors. Uh, and you have to say at this point that that's the intention of these these systems and these approaches. Yeah. Well, a Liberal backbencher called Jason Felitsky, member for McKellar in New South Wales, he he's um, part of a, a, a review committee in the House of Reps looking at housing problems, and he analyses what's gone wrong over many years. Uh, and but unfortunately, he comes up with all the wrong answers, of course. But at that point is is made that there's um, there's big money to be made in it, and while he doesn't say it, what he what he avoids saying is that people who've got property don't want the prices to go down. While we say we need affordable housing, they if the prices do drop, they have a heart attack. Yeah, I mean I think we saw that at the last federal election where policies around negative gearing reform are quite difficult to get up because. They do affect the, you know, the the home, the value of homes owned by ordinary Australians as well as property investors, um, you know, to the extent that you can make that distinction. Um, yeah. People have their savings bound up in home prices. That's true for for overwhelmingly many people. 
And indeed, um, I mean, ironically, this bloke, this, this Liberal Party member of Parliament, quotes Thomas Piketty, the, the socialist writer, and he says, Thomas Piketty's data makes clear the major cause of inequality in the world is determined by home ownership. If you want to reduce inequality, you need to ensure widespread home ownership. Well, I think at that point he's totally misquoting Piketty. But uh, it's interesting that he sees the answer in somehow making home ownership available rather than what we might consider the better alternatives. I mean, I think there's a long history of, of sort of the capitalist side of things uh, arguing for home ownership as a way to, to you know, stabilise stabilize social conflict and invest uh, working people in the, the, the economic system. Um, yeah. He, he, in fact, says that uh, in, in, a, in a slightly different way than you just said it, but he says... It is on the back of middle-class homeowners that liberal democracies have been built. They are the bulwark against political extremism. In other words, you lock people into mortgages and you, you reduce their political activity. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's perfectly correct about that, although obviously we have different views about whether it's a good thing or not. <laughs> That's right, yes, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, yes, most definitely he... Um, he, he's, not, he's not for uh, public housing, that's for sure. But he goes on, he goes on to say, uh, everything the vested interest told us to try has only made the problem worse. Well, we know that. We turned housing, this is interesting, he said, we turned housing commission into social housing. We introduced affordable housing quotas. We discounted capital gains tax. We incentivized first home buyers. We even eliminated immigration for a couple of years, but the problem only got worse. Maybe, just maybe, it is time to ask the usual suspects to justify their ideas. Well, at that point, we wish they would. But uh, <laughs> he does mention turning housing commission into social housing, but he doesn't suggest turning social housing back into housing commission, unfortunately. Yeah, he's got a real, like, the enemy of my enemy thing going on there, hasn't he? You always want to, you always want to pat him on the back. He's a bit mixed up, the poor bloke. <laughs> anyway, that's him, but they're holding an inquiry at the moment, so we'll see what comes out of that. Mm. But the, the inquiry's in, I think, to see if we can make more people homeowners rather than what we might consider to be the, the ideal result. Well, yeah, and then we'll get, we'll get more initiatives like the, the first home buyers grant that just increases housing prices some more. Yes, that's right. Well, that, uh, in fact, there was also a report recently that that recent grant they gave, which has run out that suddenly new homes, uh, the new home building has, has decreased dramatically since the government subsidy was cut out, which is, again, says something, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, on rentals, by the way, um, cause we've talked to you in the last couple of years about some changes that were for the, you know, for the better in, in, in the rental laws. Are they, are they ha what's happening over COVID in terms of that? Is, is, is some of them just gone on the wayside or are they pushing well, no, on? So the, the rental reforms that we've talked about all, all came into effect by March 29 this year. March, yeah. So they were delayed because of COVID. We had the emergency COVID laws in the, in the interim. Um, but they're all in effect now and certainly are, are better than the old regime, uh, you know, pre-2020, I guess, regime of, uh, renter, renters' rights, which was not not so impressive, but still fall pretty dramatically far short of what we would want, and and like I say, especially far short of what we need during the during the pandemic, during the lockdowns, when so many people are losing wages and income. Mm. 
but the the real problem is the one you we've already talked about though this problem of uh, capitalism of no concessions no concessions being made during this period for people who are going to hit the financial brick wall yeah uh, i mean that's absolutely true but it it's also illustrative of what's the problem all the time you know last year during you know covid lockdowns we were talking to the to different uh, politicians and bureaucrats about the need to to improve protections for pensioners uh, but pensioners weren't a sexy issue because people were worried about workers who lost income during COVID. But pensioner poverty is just an everyday thing. It happens all the time. It's constant and expected. There were no mm. extra protections. Well, what we need is a system where, where people aren't just living in poverty and where there's a protection, you know, for any reason that you might lose income or, or, or live on a lower income. Yeah, absolutely. Uh that might be a nice note to finish on, Shane. We're, uh, right. <laughs> and we can follow it up next month again. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure by next month nothing much will have changed, unfortunately. Yeah, probably right. <laughs> All right, well, thanks very much. Let me just give out the phone yeah. number again real quick because I said I would. Give that, yeah, give out that phone number, yeah. Yeah, it's a, if you want to get in touch, it's a 1-300-765-178. Um, thanks very much. I'll talk to you next month. All right, well, thank you, Shane, and thanks for All your time right. again. Cheers. Okay. Shane McGrath there from the Housing with Ace Action Group and uh, once again we've cheered listeners up no end. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today is Monday, the 20th of September, and it is 7.23 a.m. You are joined by me, Fung, and Jacob. Hi, Jacob. Uh, We seem to be... Oh, let's try that again. Hi, Jacob. Hmm... We seem to be having a few, uh, just a few hiccups there trying to hear Jacob from um, Studio 2. What we might do is just uh, go to another... Oh, okay. (laughs) Thanks, Gab. Um, Let's try that again. Good morning, Jacob. Good morning. Oh, I'm so sorry. There are just... A lot of of things to take care of. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. (laughs) Perfect. Um, 
there were just like a few extra steps to try and get Studio 2 on air and I'm still not used to that, so I do apologise. For the viewers, um, we are in separate studios right now to be COVID safe, um, so we're just finding our way, navigating that. (laughs) Um, But I hope everyone's having a lovely morning, enjoying the sunshine if you can. Yeah, it's beautiful outside. Um, So let's quickly run through what we've got today. Um, At 7.40, there's a very special, you've got a special report there, Jacob. Yeah, so I'm going to be talking a bit about a program called Youth Parliament, um, where a bunch of young people have come together um, and they've each prepared a set of bills to put through in a mock parliament program. Mm. Um, so it's it's very exciting. It's all um, pre-prepared, featuring a few different interviews with some very inspiring young people. So looking forward to it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. At 8 o'clock, we'll be speaking to Dr. Patricia Ranald from AFTINET. Um, Pat came on the show maybe two months ago to speak to us about the proposal for a temporary waiver of monopoly rules on on COVID-19 vaccines and and so she's coming on the show to give us an update which would be interesting. Very exciting. Yeah well uh, let's go to a song this one's quite short Um, it's called Trapped Inside uh, by Kid Dave and it was um, one of the projects that came from Shelter 2 um, which was a commission for um, any uh, artists of colour who uh, live in or were staying in any of the nine public housing towers in Flemington and North Melbourne during the July lockdown last year. So a lot of great um, projects came from this. And so this is Trapped Inside by Kid Dave. Look, we've been locked up for a while, we couldn't even leave our buildings The system doesn't care, man, they don't worry about our feelings Parents can't even work, so how they gonna feed their children? They don't really care about us, my point is proven We were trapped up in a box, trying to get out, but they won't let us They tried to shut us down, tried to be quiet, tried to forget us Had to go and pose us, try to write, try to suppress us The virus really came and stopped our lives and now we're fed up From the east to the west, from the north to the south We was up in quarantine, they wouldn't let us out Holding toilet paper, I couldn't figure it out Is this ever gonna finish? I've been sitting with some doubt I've been trying to crack a smile, but we've been like this for a while Shout out to the doctors, did their best to hold it down Now we got the vaccine, share it with the crowd We're tired of the virus, so we gotta say it loud We just wanna live our lives how they were before I've had enough of the virus, I can't take no more That's why we gotta stand up and let them know That's why we gotta stand up and let them know Let them know So that was a song called Trapped Inside by Kid Dave, who's one of the many artists who were commissioned by Shelter 2 to create um, some songs and other artistic projects uh, from, yeah, from the hard lockdown last year. We're now going to bring you a report from Annie 
from Stick Together on the Sydney's COVID outbreak from a worker's perspective. A couple of weeks ago, major companies put out a full-page news advertisement promoting the removal of state lockdowns for the benefit of the economy. This places the question of health versus profit squarely on the agenda. We have also heard about large companies making hay out of JobKeeper, rewarding executives with bonuses and shareholders with dividends, while Centrelink is apparently searching out workers who they say receive payments they shouldn't have. The LNP governments federally and in New South Wales are pinning their rhetoric on their core value of individual responsibility, a very poor weapon against a pandemic for the majority of workers who do not receive shareholder payouts, who can't even demand customers wear a mask. Today we hear some words from the belly of the beast, New South Wales, from workers intimately affected by the wildfire that is the Delta virus in Sydney. ACOS is reporting that if you are low paid, you are lagging behind in the vaccination stakes. This week, so over 100... The Wales government response is couched in concerned tones, but words are cheap. We hear from some of the workers on the ground. Let's hear first from a person who is working for a privately owned business contracted to run a COVID testing centre on a Sydney construction site. I started doing rapid antigen testing at a construction site, testing the workers. It was a really big site of about 1,600 to 2,000 workers. In starting my first week of work, it was total chaos. We had no biohazard waste bins. We were using black bin bags to dispose of everything from... PPE to contaminated test samples. We were even asked to take home our face shields as there was just nowhere safely to store them. People had been using other people's face shields due to the lack of PPE supply that we did have. Protocols weren't being followed. There was an incident that I heard about from a colleague where a collector tested a worker and the test was positive. Instead of doing a PCR test, there was just another rapid antigen test that was done and subsequently it came up negative and the worker was just free to leave. And, you know, due to the lack of staff ratios, surfaces weren't being cleaned between tests. There was just so many, like, ongoing issues. Um, I approached my team leader with, like, some of the concerns I had and um, also because, you know, other colleagues were extremely hesitant about approaching management in fear of losing their jobs during the pandemic. Um, As all of us are, you know, casuals on eight-week contracts, when I did approach management, I was just shut down by them. You know, they told me that there was no training available and basically I just had to deal with it. I ended up speaking to my union on wanting to get some advice on how to go forward and they told me that they would write a letter to management on my behalf with the information that I provided to them. And after all of this, the site was eventually shut for two weeks due to a positive case of a construction worker and there was zero information given to myself or my colleagues. We weren't told if we were close or casual contacts of the positive case. We weren't told if we had to isolate 
And after this interaction with management and my union, I've um, subsequently been sacked from my job for exercising my rights as a unionist and speaking up about OHS issues in my workplace. It's definitely a lesson that I've learned that the only way that we can win our demands as workers in this pandemic is to fight collectively. Now a word from the train driver talking a few weeks ago about his experience. Uh, I work as a train driver. I'm a delegate with the RCABU. There's currently over 500 public transport workers who are isolating or in either yeah, quarantined or in self-isolation because they're close or casual contacts with a positive case. Overwhelmingly bus drivers who it's palpably obvious were at extremely high risk of contracting the disease because they have to work in enclosed air spaces with people who may be positive. So sometimes, you know, people will be on a bus ride for an hour or longer. Yet the government has, up until a few days ago, uh, refused to vaccinate bus drivers in Sydney. It's people who are at highly risk of, car- of contracting the disease spreading it to their families and their co-workers. This week, over 120 young people from across the... Um, ...in the bus transit system currently is entirely in lockdown um, because of one person, the person who was actually doing, like, sign-on checks for people, um, turned out to be a positive case. Now, even though they've um, announced that they're going to now, only, like, you know, months and months into this uh, outbreak, um, prioritise vaccinating bus drivers... Um, train drivers and people working the railways are still exempt from that priority vaccination. And this is a group of workers who come from all over Sydney, mixed together in depots, um, in shared uh, meal rooms and all these kind of things, where there's been very little done to actually increase the safety of the workplaces uh, in the eventuality that there will be um, people who are positive who come into work, um, who are still have to go through the Hunger Games system of trying to get access to the vaccine. Yeah, people have been still forced to go to work in workplaces that are unessential and should have been shut down months ago. But workers who work in workplaces which are absolutely essential and have to function are not being given the protection that they need to make sure that they don't get sick or, you know, worse. Now a word from a nurse at a public hospital. So I'm a public hospital nurse in Sydney. I work at St Vincent's and I just really want to agree with um, society generally being ill-equipped to deal with a pandemic. And you'd think if anywhere was um, built to deal with it, it would be a hospital, but they really aren't. I've worked in so many public hospitals um, in my nursing career, and, you know, we have pandemics every year. The influenza is like a global annual pandemic, and it's something that happens every year. Every hospital is ill-equipped for it. We don't have enough rooms to deal with even a flu pandemic that happens every year, let alone COVID, we're flat out at the best of times in the public health system. We're looking at potentially thousands of um, ICU patients when we only have ICU beds in the hundreds. Um, If we let this thing rip, even if we, you know, open up at 70 or 80%, we're still going to be massively overwhelmed because we just do not have the capacity in the public health system, which is just chronically under-resourced and underfunded. So, yeah, I work in the anaesthetics and theatre department and we're all being kind of trained up to look after ICU patients and that's not something that I've ever really done. But, you know, like, I guess (laughs) you just sink or swim in this kind of situation. 
We finish our report on the New South Wales COVID situation from a worker's point of view with an ICU nurse. I would like to make it very clear that the views being expressed by myself today are my own, and I'm speaking as a nurse and branch official within the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association. I am not representing my employers in any way. I think it's fair to say that none of us imagined that we would find ourselves living through a global pandemic. I certainly did not imagine it when I started my nursing career over a decade ago, Um, but here we are. I'm here to talk about what it's like to be a nurse in New South Wales during the COVID-19 pandemic and what's making us so worried. For the last decade, the NSW NMA has been campaigning for ratios, a campaign that is fighting for more nurses and midwives to the number of patients in our care so that we can deliver the care and treatment our patients deserve. We are fighting for there to be enough of us to meet the workload of our role. Not having enough nurses or midwives is both unsafe for our patients and incredibly distressing and demoralizing for myself and my colleagues. And all of this was before COVID-19. Since then, due to the inherent reliance on healthcare workers to address the pandemic response, our workforce has been further stretched to meet demands in new work environments, such as airport screening teams, the quarantine system, COVID-19 testing clinics, vaccination centers, and many more I haven't listed. In the months and weeks prior to the June 16 outbreak, many of the union branches were engaging in industrial action, which was obviously disrupted. Um, Instead of fighting for safer patient care, we've had to return to the front lines of our current battle with COVID. We've all been working overtime to make sure that someone is there to look after our patients in hospital, as well as out in the community. And now we find ourselves teetering on the edge of there not being enough healthcare workers to meet the needs of an increasing number of high acuity patients. Fortunately, we do have a well-connected healthcare system here with a workforce who understand the importance of teamwork. The healthcare system is working because it's powered by a compassionate, competent, and highly skilled workforce. However, we're all acutely and intimately aware of our human limits and the hard limits of our resources. The escalating outbreak is a daily reality for every healthcare worker. Each shift becomes more difficult to get through. We're all feeling exhausted, and not just because we're healthcare workers, but we're also members of the same communities we're caring for. And there's a lot of concern about how this situation is impacting on the broader population. It really frustrates me to read the opinions of how lockdown is affecting our mental health. Lockdown sucks for all of us, but the prolonged lockdown we're in is certainly not doing any of us any favors. I would, however, have preferred to have seen a stronger preventative approach, but hindsight is 2020. The reality is that the most affected communities are where a large number of socioeconomically disadvantaged people live. The majority of these people are employed in workplaces that require them to leave home to go to work. To help paint the picture, imagine being a 15-year-old in a working-class single-parent household, and you have five other siblings. You hold a part-time job at Macca's to help supplement your family's income. You pick up COVID from working at Macca's and you take it home to your family. You don't discover that you have COVID until you start to feel unwell and you get tested. But then at that point, it's too late. Now every member of your household has to isolate at home, whether they're positive or close contact, which means no one can go to work and access to financial relief is inadequate or non-existent. 
Imagine being a public transport driver who has become infected with COVID at work, and you've taken it home to your child and your partner. The three of you are being treated for COVID in different hospitals across the city, and your partner has just been intubated in ICU. As a healthcare worker, I grow increasingly concerned about the impact this outbreak is having on the working class in Sydney and across the entire world. Financial distress is a consequence of the pandemic, not lockdowns. Families are being ripped apart because of the pandemic, not lockdowns. Our best tool to get through this pandemic is getting vaccinated. But it is not the only tool in our toolbox. Lockdowns are meant to limit the spread of the virus. Lockdowns allow us to test, trace, isolate, and quarantine to keep the spread under control. The National Cabinet's plan forward is based on the Doherty Institute modeling, using data and calculating factors to answer the question, what percent of fully vaccinated people do we need before we can start relaxing restrictions? The Doherty modeling also calculates an estimated number of deaths in the first 180 days if we started to roll back restrictions with how many with um, active cases in the community. One of the variable inputs here that's really important is the calculation of how many active cases there are currently. And that those models only go for 180 days. We don't see what happens after that. Now, today in New South Wales, the government announced that we had 1,599 new known COVID-19 cases, with 1,164 people being treated in hospital, 221 ICU beds being used by COVID, and eight more deaths. In the last 14 days, that equates to 19,052 new cases and 81 deaths, 81 preventable deaths. Current modeling shows our peak case numbers and hospitalizations should be somewhere around mid-October. It's also expected that New South Wales will hit the 70% of people over the age of 16 who are fully vaccinated and are planning to see pubs, clubs, hairdressers, and cafes start to cautiously reopen around October 18th. At the predicted peak of this outbreak, with I think my calculation was about 3.6 million people still unvaccinated in the state. I'm afraid to imagine it. I'm I'm afraid to imagine what it would be like for myself and my colleagues. I am becoming more and more exhausted every day. And just like my colleagues, I worry when we hit that hard limit. Drowning is a very apt description of what it feels like to be a healthcare worker right now. I have a lot of healthcare colleagues, not just nurses, but doctors, psychologists, allied health professionals, AMBOs. We all talk about how our workplaces have suddenly been converted to COVID wards and how our resources are being stretched more and more every day. Senior doctors and nurses are being redeployed to COVID wards and ICUs and often being replaced by less experienced junior staff, if at all. In ICU and recess, which is like the ICU of the emergency department, It requires one nurse to one patient 24-7 to keep that person alive. It takes a team, a bare minimum, five nurses and doctors to manage cardiac or respiratory arrest, two things that are more common in current situation with COVID. 
This requires that the doctors and nurses are experienced and specially trained for advanced life-saving procedures. And what happens if you have that one team of five doctors and nurses on shift, but there are multiple arrests occurring all at once? Because the emergency department is understaffed and also facing a really high acuity of patients. And it's difficult to consider the grave consequences if the healthcare system hits those hard limits. Imagine having a stroke and arriving at the hospital emergency department where you are kept in an ambulance or tent outside while doctors and nurses take blood samples, monitor your vital signs, and rush to deliver the required life-saving treatments to you while also needing to care for a dozen or so other patients with COVID who require time-sensitive life-saving care. This is also in addition to all of the patients who are probably inside the emergency department waiting too. This is the reality myself, my colleagues, and all healthcare workers are grimly facing. And I haven't even gone into the work health safety concerns regarding PPE supplies. More COVID means a higher consumption of PPE. What happens if we don't have adequate PPE? None of us signed up for the burden of deciding whose life is saved and whose is not. We're heroes. We're not heroes. We are highly skilled healthcare professionals. We're advocates and carers, and we have a responsibility to speak out, and many of us are. And that's why I'm speaking up today, to advocate for saving lives. Sobering words there from an ICU nurse from Sydney, uh, Sydney's COVID outbreak, speaking there about the ongoing uh, horrors of, of the impacts of COVID um, on the healthcare system. Uh, that was a report uh, done by Annie for Sticking Together, or Stick Together, sorry. If you are interested in listening to the show, Stick Together airs every Wednesday from 8.30 to 9 a.m. Thanks, Fong. And up next, it's my pleasure to announce that there is a program happening this week called Youth Parliament. Um, and the program is run by YMCA Victoria and involves over 120 young people coming together to debate bills that they've developed on issues they're passionate about. Um, so they debate the bills um, and then they put them forward to politicians for consideration. And here are some of their stories. This week, over 120 young people from across Victoria will gather virtually to present bills they've developed for a mock parliament. The topics of these bills range from gender-neutral bathrooms to mandatory Auslan training in schools to youth homelessness. This is the YMCA's Victorian Youth Parliament. I chatted with three inspiring youth advocates about their involvement in the program. My name is Kurgeon, I'm the Program Director for YMCA Victoria Youth Parliament. Kurgeon Angel is the Program Director for Youth Parliament. This is his second year running the program, and his third year being a member of the task force. He also participated in the program in both the Youth Press Gallery and as a Youth Parliamentarian. Can you give us an overview of what the Youth Parliament program actually is? Mm-hmm. So YMCA Victoria Youth Parliament brings together 120 young people from across the state in teams of 20, um, and each team is built up of six young people. Um, I like to think of Youth Parliament as when you start off as an individual, now you meet your team of six, um, and that's your team. Then you move on to meet your chamber, 
Um, and that's going to be your bigger team. And that's uh, a collection of five teams. Um, and then from there, you become a house. Um, and that's your chamber plus one more. Um, and then when we get to the week of youth parliament, we become a youth parliament. Um, and that's two houses of 60 participants each um, with 10 teams each, um, all coming together to debate um, and explain the issues that they've developed um, uh, solutions for through proposed legislation uh, throughout the course of their journey. I could tell Kurgeon had a strong passion for empowering young people. He shared with me some of his favourite things about Youth Parliament. There are two parts of Youth Parliament that I absolutely adore. The first of my favourite things for Youth Parliament is uh, the storytelling element. Um, I remember when I was a participant on Youth Parliament 2016, uh, I came on board uh, through a organisation called Young Carers. Um, as a young carer myself, um, I had grown up looking after and supporting uh, my family members, all of whom have disabilities. Um, and through Young Carers, they connected me to a local council youth group. Um, and together I went on to do Youth Parliament. And I got to take um, both how the systems uh, worked in favour of me that I'd been a part of, um, such as the medical system or the school system or even Young Carers as an organisation, um, and how systems had also failed me um, that the state government was responsible for. Um, and I got to take my voice and my story uh, to the halls of parliament um, to where decisions are made um, and share that story um, and that voice uh, to members of parliament and everyone listening there. And that was a really special moment. Um, so I, each year it's my privilege to listen to the stories individually of each of the 120 youth parliamentarians. Um, I think it highlights just how nuanced and complicated our society is. Um, but the second of my favourite part of youth parliament is its community that it builds. Um, and it goes, you might be an individual um, and you might have your worldview uh, centred around, I don't know, the, the, the world that you've grown up in. Um, but what if you met someone else and they challenged your assumption, they challenged your worldview? Um, and I think the real importance of youth parliament is to do it at a young age um, and young people start to connect, develop, create empathy um, and bridge the gaps between communities um, and start becoming something that I would like to term a global citizen, um, someone who cares deeply about the lived realities of others. Um, and I think that's what we get to do in youth parliament. I was fortunate enough to speak with two out of the 120 youth parliamentarians about what bills they were working on and what the program meant to them. Shahila Usman was elected as the youth premier by her peers. She's also the diversity and inclusion portfolio leader at the Skyline Foundation, supporting young people who are at risk of leaving the school system early due to financial hardships and family challenges. Her team is working on a bill to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 14. Shahila's bill proposes more funding for alternative pathways for young offenders, such as alternative education and rehabilitation. It also proposes the establishment of a Victorian youth justice and advocacy body to assess and review current and subsequent child offenders. I'm curious to know a little bit more about your proposed solution for rehabilitation um, and alternative education. Would you care to elaborate a little bit more on, on that? 
For sure. So um, some people might be aware of the Parkville College that exists. Um, it is open to young people who have been involved or are involved with the youth justice system. Um, essentially what it does is it provides a support framework that enables these young people to decide what their future looks like. It gives them a lot of autonomy, but also a lot of hope in the future. And it's not just support um, while they're there. It's support embedded um, in the various um what am I trying to say? Yeah, at various key points in their goal plan. So whether they want to finish year 10 or end up in VC or VCAL or complete TAFE or go to university, um, we're trying to facilitate a framework that will enable that in addition to providing psychological and rehabilitative support um, that does factor in um, a variety of um, key determinants to um, that disproportionately affect people in the justice system. So mental health issues um, belonging to culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. These things um, often, they get inflated with the idea of criminality, um, especially in young people, um, especially in black and brown um, young people. Um, So we're addressing that and attempting to make sure that this bill goes across the board, ensures that everything is covered and doesn't um, presume an inherent criminality um, in young people. Um, We understand that there are some serious crimes that are committed and there are parts of our bill that do address that in um, some depth, Um, but there's also legislation that exists that addresses that issue already. We're just trying to ensure that it's not a 10-year-old that should be in, what is it, fourth grade? Um, that's in a prison um, for something they probably don't have a full understanding of. Shahila's bill is not only driven by her political beliefs surrounding the age of criminal responsibility, it's also inspired by her personal experiences supporting her sister, who was involved in the criminal justice system at a young age. Um, My little sister um, dropped out for three years when she was um, quite involved in the youth justice system. And it's by some miracle she managed to graduate without being um, in a detention facility. Um, She managed to finish her VCAL. But that was because a really large group of individuals was behind her and cheering her on. And that isn't something that's afforded to every young person involved in the justice system. And I think that's what we want to change. We want to see that change because as students from Skyline, we know what that looks like. We know what that extra support and that extra care um, looked like for us. We know that that prevented us from dropping out. It enabled us to complete our goals past um, high school. And we want that for everyone else. The last person I spoke with was Dexter Clay, who is a youth advocate, a drag queen, and a deputy chamber leader. Well, my, my full name, with my middle names included, is Dexter Ziggy Richard Clay. Sorry. Dexter Ziggy Richard Clay. Yeah, that's the, that's the full, full verse. That is phenomenal. It it sounds like you could be a rapper or you could be, you know, anything in the show industry if you wanted. Well, I use my middle name as my drag name, so it's perfect. Dexter's bill aims to help young people who are experiencing homelessness. Yeah, so our bill, um, the Wellingtonshire Group, excuse me, um, our bill is dedicated to solving problems with youth homelessness. Um, so our bill sort of dedicated to lots of different solutions to a lot of problems because we wanted to make sure that our bill was not, we were worried that if, if we were only targeting one thing in homelessness, that we would, people would still slip through the cracks. Um, 
So our bill sort of has a few different uh, levels to it. Um, we're targeting hostile architecture, um, so, you know, benches with spikes and stuff, you know, cobbled under bridges um, to sort of deter homeless people from resting there. Um, so we've targeted that. Um, we're also implementing um, youth homelessness solutions, which will be a service um, designed to find uh, housing, um, uh, support services, um, mental health services and food services as well um, to make sure that people are able to find themselves, you know, homes and stuff like that with assistance and with care, um, especially in regional Victoria as well. We wanted to make sure that uh, our bill represented the full state um, and not just metropolitan Melbourne. Um, we also have uh, implemented an old program that was uh, taken out in 2014, uh, the uh, Safety House program. Uh, so safety houses were originally designed to sort of help uh, just children in danger. Um, if they were feeling unsafe, walking home to and from school and stuff, they could look for the yellow triangle on the safety house or the fence, and they could go in and find, you know, safe refuge. Um, we've sort of taken that program and altered it a bit to be for young people that have been either kicked out of home or, you know, feel unsafe at home due to, you know, domestic violence or stuff like that, that, you know, if they can't make it to a service, that, you know, they can find, you know, a little safe haven to stay at for a day for them with uh, homelessness solutions to be able to, you know, help them out a little bit more. Um, so, yeah, our bills really want to make sure that we're covering a lot of things because we don't want people to slip through the cracks and then, you know, if we don't help everyone, then we help no one. It's clear from speaking with these young people how important and how empowering the Youth Parliament program is. For yourself and for other young people, why do you think this program is important in 2021? Uh, I think it's important because, you know, we live in a time where, uh, you know, COVID is running rampant and, you know, we don't all feel like we have a voice um, and uh, you know, politics is meant to give us our voice, um, whether that be through voting and other stuff like that. Um, political engagement is sort of the way to show uh, what you represent um, and trying to, you know, put that in forth into the community and into the world um, with what you believe. So I think a lot of young people sort of feel this feeling of being disenfranchised at the moment from their spaces uh, and from their communities uh, and feel like what they have to say doesn't matter because everyone else older than them is making the decisions. Um, so I think this program sort of helps put forth the idea that, you know, we as young people, we still have our voices and we still have our, you know, things to do in this world um, and we still have power to make change. Um, but because of COVID, it's just a bit different now. Um, so, you know, you might not be able to get up there and protest, but you can do other things with your voice. And I think that this program has sort of helped bring that out in a lot of young people um, in a time where we've been really disconnected from everything around us. The program itself is so important, um, first and foremost, because it challenges the assumptions that young people don't care about anything beyond their own lived realities. Um, I think that it directly uh, 
attacks that discourse that young people um, should be at school learning, uh, which is something that was quite uh, specifically stated uh, by a federal politician a couple of years ago. Uh, they shouldn't be out protesting. Um, I think the power of the program is that it connects young people's passions um, with avenues for political change. Um, and that's really, really important. Um, because every young person, I've worked with thousands over the past five years of my adult career, um, every young person I've met, whether they believe it or not, um, have a passion about something. Um, the power of the program is to connect that passion um, to an actual means of making a difference. Youth Parliament begins today on Monday and will continue virtually until this Friday. If you want to stay up to date with Youth Parliament, myself, and other Press Gallery journalists will be updating a blog, which you can check out at www.ypvic.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash ypvic, Instagram at Youth Parliament Victoria, or on Twitter at ypvic. We'll be posting every day about the debates. Good morning. You're on 3CR Monday Brecky, joined by myself, Jacob, and Fong. And that was a little segment on the YMCA Victoria Youth Parliament. Um, and my involvement with the program is in a component called the Youth Press Gallery, um, in which myself and a group of other journalists will be reporting on all of the debates throughout the week. Um, and it was a really inspiring experience hearing from the young people in that report, and I'm very much looking forward to continuing to report on these bills throughout the week. Um, and now Fong has a very exciting interview with Patricia Reynolds. Yes, that's right. Thank you, Jacob. <clears throat> there have been updates regarding the proposal for a temporary waiver of monopoly rules on COVID-19 vaccines, a proposal that was introduced at the World Trade Organization by India and South Africa back in October 2020. One, sub, uh, one such update is that the Australian government um, backing, uh, is now backing the waiver. Here to provide us with these updates is Dr. Patricia Ranald, who is the convener of AFTINET, the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network, and who spoke to Jacob on Monday Breakfast in July. Welcome back to the show, Patricia. Oh, thank you. Now, last time you were here, the World Trade Organization was about to have an important meeting to discuss the proposal for a temporary waiver. Uh, could you please tell us the outcome of that meeting? Well, the good news is, are you getting an echo? Um, no, everything sounds all good right. here. Right. Okay. The good news is that um, our months and months of campaigning had, did result in the Australian government before that meeting finally um, agreeing to support the waiver. It, it, previously, it had said that it supported the negotiations but hadn't come out clearly supporting the waiver. Mm. And um, we um, thank all those people who uh, supported that campaign by writing, signing petitions and, and writing messages to their local member and to the minister. Um, so um, there were... Uh, about 15 large community organisations involved in that campaign and mobilising their members. Um, so on the actual meeting on September the 14th, um, these meetings take place behind closed doors, but we have heard reports from that meeting that um, 
this was a meeting of the World Trade Organisation Intellectual Property Council, that at that meeting Australia did um, voice its support for the waiver. So um, we're very pleased about that. However, um, we feel we have to keep up the pressure on Australia um, to actually take uh, more firm action, uh, particularly in, in persuading others, other governments, to support the waiver. Yes. So Oh, no, thank you for that, Patricia. Yeah, so I was going to say that it was reported that the Trades and Investments Minister, Dan Tian, finally uh, said that the Australian government now supports the, the waiver. Um, and like you just said, uh, even though that's really positive news, there needs to be even further action from the government um, on this. Um, so could you tell a bit more about how, uh, or, you know, their, their discussions with other, with other governments from the world, around the world um, in, in persuading other nations to, to support the waiver as well? Yes, well, our understanding is that um, the US, for example, announced that it supported the waiver for vaccines um, in May, but it hasn't been taking a very active role in the negotiations. So we're asking the Australian government to... Um, Prime Minister Morrison is going to the US this week for a series of meetings. There's actually a vaccine summit this week. So um, we're asking our government to um, talk to the US government about how they can take a more active role and push the negotiations along. There's also... Um, Governments which are actually opposing the waiver, um, the EU group, um, the EU Commission, which does the negotiating on behalf of the EU, is uh, opposing the waiver, um, acting on behalf of its large pharmaceutical companies. And um, we're asking our government to, um, again, be more vocal about saying mm. that the EU should be supporting the waiver. And also, we believe that Australia should actually become a sponsor of the waiver, the waiver was actually originally moved by South Africa and India in October last year, and um, there are a number of countries that are active support uh, sponsors of the waiver, mostly developing countries, but we believe Australia should become an active sponsor of the waiver. And there are also about a, more than 100 governments now that are supporting the waiver, whether they're sponsors or not. So we would like Australia to... Um, take the next step of becoming an active sponsor of the waiver. And, and what would that mean to, to be a sponsor? Well, it, it would mean just a formal um, act at the WTO, mm. adding their name to the list of formal sponsors of the waiver. It's like adding your name to supporting, um, you know, a motion yeah. in the WTO. Um, I think that'll be a very powerful symbol. Mm. Uh, uh, of Australia's support and um, would also help in encouraging others to do the same. Definitely. Um, you mentioned before that the EU is a big opponent of this waiver and they are um, representing some of the big pharmaceutical companies over there. Have we heard from any of these big companies about the proposal? What are, what are their thoughts on this waiver? Well, they've been lobbying furiously against it. Um, these are companies like Pfizer and Moderna who, um, especially those two who make them the um, mRNA 
vaccines, which are actually the ones that can be used by any age group. Mm -hmm. So they're the most sought-after vaccines. They refuse to share their intellectual property on a voluntary basis with other countries. What the waiver would enable is the sharing of that intellectual property so that there could be vastly increased production of vaccines um, throughout the world at the moment, as you know, because they have a monopoly on both the price and the quantity, mm. there just aren't enough vaccines to vaccinate people, in, especially in low-income countries. Um, if you look at the figures, only about 80% of the vaccines that have been manufactured have gone to um, rich countries and only 20% to poor countries. And in some countries, the, vac the rate of vaccination is um, about 1%. And this isn't going to be fixed by donation schemes, although mm. donation schemes are important for immediate um, emergency access. Um, what we really need is a huge increase in the manufacturing capacity globally um, so that um, in countries like South Africa and India where they do have manufacturing capacity, they already make a lot of generic medicines, they could um, address this really what is a continuing crisis where millions of people are dying and where mm. new variants of the vaccine like Delta are spreading. So um, we really want um, Australia to take a lead in this. Now, the pharmaceutical companies um, are clinging on to their um, intellectual property, to their monopoly, and um, we want, we need a lot of pressure on the companies as well as on the um, governments to... Um, change this situation. Definitely. Um, is it just about the money? Is it, or is it anything else that they've... Um, have they said anything else about why they're opposing um, the, the waiver? Or is it simply... Ability. I mean, they're already the most profitable companies in the world before mm. the, the pandemic. Yeah. But um, really, the companies that have the monopoly on these vaccines have already made billions and billions of dollars from um, selling them at the prices that they can dictate. Um, so they can't say that they haven't made enough money. What, what they argue is that they need um, to have the incentive in, of intellectual property monopolies to um, invent future medicines. Mm -hmm. But that, that, that argument isn't valid either because for these vaccines, as we all know, there was a whole lot of public money that went into the research and development um, for all of these vaccines. So um, in a pandemic, it is just immoral to continue to have total monopoly control by a few pharmaceutical companies. What we're talking about is a temporary waiver for COVID-related vaccines and other products. And um, the companies are continuing to resist this. The Vaccine companies in Australia, under the banner of Medicines Australia, actually um, put out a statement criticising the Australian government for supporting the waiver. Um, mm. So, you know, that's where they're at. But I, I think they're on the losing side of the argument now. Yeah. Um, I, there is a global movement on this and there is going to be a vaccine summit in um Washington on Wednesday, which Morrison, our Prime Minister Morrison will be attending. And I think there will be a tremendous push um, to, um, as well as step up immediate donations of vaccines 
there will be a push to support the waiver. Yeah, and like you said, you know, already over 100 countries do support the this temporary waiver uh, of of monopoly rules and um, intellectual property on on COVID-19 vaccines. Um, going back to uh, the distribution of, of vaccines, um, we know that programs such as COVAX have been implemented to ensure that lower income countries have access to vaccines and are able to, to vaccinate their people. And I know that even Australia has dipped into that a little bit controversially. Um, how, are you able to tell us how that program is going? Are, are lower income countries successfully um, accessing vaccines through COVAX? Well, there are two problems with it. First of all, the ambition of the program itself is um, they were talking about getting 2 billion vaccines in donations. Um, that would, uh, we need $11 billion, sorry, 11 billion va- doses of vaccines mm-hmm. to va- vaccinate the whole world. So 2 billion would only be, uh, even if they got that, would only be about 20% of um, people in developing countries. Um, Secondly, they haven't made that target. They haven't got the $2 billion. They were supposed to get that by the end of the year and then have another target for next year. So the, it, it's just not possible, given the limited production of vaccines under monopoly control, mm. to get enough vaccines um, or to have a target. I mean, in Australia, we have a target of vaccine, vaccinating 80% of people. If you only vaccinate 20% of a people in a country, what you're talking about is maybe your frontline health workers and, um, you know, other essential, some other essential workers, but you're not talking about um, protecting the whole population. Mm. Uh, So the COVAX um, initiative can only address immediate donations as a stopgap. It can't address the actual need for mass vaccinations mass vaccinations in low-income countries. Um, so um, really, uh, at this meeting in Washington, they'll probably step up um, or get some more donations, but it's, it's not known whether they'll even reach that $2 billion target. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's interesting that currently in... Australia and especially recently in Victoria we're having discussions about opening back up and the government has just released their roadmap um, to to yeah I guess a post lockdown way of life um, but I think it's interesting to note that even if as a country we we open up internally globally it's going to be a while especially if if we aren't vaccinating um, you know, whole countries, like you said, if it's only really 20%, um, yeah, it's, it's going to go on for a while. That's right. It, it, this waiver is important for ending, actually having a strategy to end the pandemic and also to give um, those countries that have the capacity um, some independence in manufacturing their own vaccines. Um, If they can get the intellectual property and the know-how to do it, they can do it. Um, And there is a capacity, as I said, there in a number of countries for regional hubs to be set up for um, mass manufacturing of vaccines. Um, The other thing that's interesting is that Australia itself 
um, also wants to have local capacity for manufacturing vaccines. That is to have... They, they have asked um, Pfizer and Moderna to um, voluntarily share their um, intellectual property. They'd be paid for it, of course, but, but to uh, share it with a local company who could then... Um, have we could then have a manufacturing capacity of for those vaccines in Australia, but those companies have also refused those kinds of voluntary arrangements, um, and they've refused to have any voluntary arrangements of that kind of sharing um, the intellectual property in order f for local manufacturing to take place in other countries as well, including developing countries. So the system at, at, at the moment is just not working. But in the long term. Um, if we're going to address future pandemics, we have to have that local, you know, a much better global um, capacity in different parts of the world, including in low-income and developing countries, in order to tackle pandemics in the future. Definitely. Um, and it will be interesting, like you said, to, to see what comes from the vaccine summit that's due to take place, um, was it this week, you said? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's all we have time for, uh, Patricia, but thank you so much for joining us and perhaps we could have you back on back on Monday breakfast following the summit just to give us an update there as well. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that was Dr. Patricia Reynold from AFTINET bringing us an update on the ongoing discussions and negotiations at the World Trade Organization to implement a temporary waiver of IP and patenting rules on COVID-19 vaccines. We'll be right, uh, we'll be back right after this. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, a lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app or listen live each Monday at midday. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to breakfast. Uh, the time is 8.18. And Jacob, you've got some news headlines for us. Yeah. So um, as of a couple of days ago, Christian Porter has resigned from the federal cabinet 
um, and he's now going to be resuming his role as a backbencher in the federal parliament. Um, and he released a three-page statement confirming his resignation, in which he uh, directed some blame towards the ABC, um, so we are told. Um, and a, an extract from that uh, resignation statement is, after discussing the matter with the Prime Minister, I accept that any uncertainty on this point provides a very unhelpful distraction for the government in its work. So um, it doesn't sound like there's any admission to wrongdoing. Um, what are your thoughts, Fong? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, what I've been seeing is just a lot of commentary and a lot of reactions from people who have, um, I guess, been involved in, you know, what happened um, last year, or no, I guess early this year with Christian Porter, just a lot of anger mm. um, from from a lot of the people in the community. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess we'll, we'll see what, what comes from that. In the upcoming weeks, there has yeah. yeah certainly been a lot of outrage in the community. Mm. Um, so I think this is definitely a welcome decision. Um, however, I I do not believe that there are enough ramifications um, <laughs> given some of the the activities that he has partaken in in the past. Uh, well, as you said, in the past year. Yeah, um, and we haven't seen. Um, I mean, this has sort of come about because of the blind trust, mm. you know, that, that someone paid for his legal fees. Um, but we don't really know much more about that, do we? No, that mm. would certainly be an interesting follow-up for the, the ABC. Maybe um, Louise Milligan could report on that as well after her um, scathing review of, of Christian Porter's sexual assault allegations. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely think that would be good. Um, but in other news, um, which is this one I'm sure is very welcome across Melbourne and Victoria, is yesterday Premier Dan Andrews released the roadmap uh, for Victoria's pathway out of lockdown. And it's looking like, provided we hit an 80% double vaccination rate, um, that we might be out of lockdown by the 26th of October, which is exciting. It is very exciting. Have you been on any picnics since uh i guess saturday <laughs> um sadly not with the uh the weather lately yeah. it has not been ideal picnic weather no i was going to say i feel like that happens every time we're about to open up the weather's like mm. um think again <laughs> stay inside <laughs> yeah definitely the weather is certainly the best deterrent for people gathering outdoors yeah um but I am excited uh, that we'll be able to open up by summer. Mm. However, also, um, I think one of my main concerns about this is that people may perhaps drop the ball on their basic hygiene and mask wearing, um, because we need to keep in mind that while we are open, the virus is still present in the community, and in particular, it impacts a lot of vulnerable people. So mm. I think it's important um while we can enjoy these these nice things, we've also got to remember to wash our hands and wear our masks and, and everything. Exactly. And remember, if you can, please go get vaccinated. Um, there are lots of vaccine clinics, uh, both permanent ones and pop-up ones in the community. So make sure you go to the um, government health website to find out how and where you can get vaccinated. 
Absolutely. And I think that's probably, we, well, those are two headlines. I don't think we have time for, for any more, sadly. <laughs> no, we're going to go to a, um, a, a really short um, story now uh, brought by, uh, brought to us by Annie from Solidarity Breakfast. It's an update from a group who continue in their fight to overturn the indefinite closure of a community garden by the management of um, Collingwood Children's Farm. We've got Giles, who is one of the members of the Collingwood Community Gardeners Group. G'day, Giles. How are you? Hi, Annie. How are you going? Thanks for having me. Yeah. Can you give us an idea of what's been going on since the Collingwood Children's Farm decided that uh, they're going to lock the gates for OH&S concerns at the uh, community garden? Yeah, so that was a while ago now in uh, May, and uh, we haven't uh, had any resolution to that, nor have we had a uh, plan announced from the, the children's farm, just um, intermittent updates and sort of changing changing stories. So initially it was the um, OH&S um, safety issues that were given as a reason for, for closing the gardens, but um, as the gardeners uh, all banded together around this and, and uh, you know, after the shock of kind of being told you know, they weren't able to access the gardens. We kind of organised to, um, you know, work through the issues, try and get what needed to be fixed, fixed, and the farm rejected that um, pretty straightforwardly. And so we haven't been able to get back onto the plots uh, since May. Yeah, which is really unfortunate, especially in lockdown. Yeah, I mean, it's just been a massive toll on a lot of people's mental health because there was something that, um, you know, People living in, uh, like I do, in apartments that don't have any green space or gardens um, in in the Yarra area, uh, in the Yarra City Council or in the Abbotsford Collingwood area, especially, um, you know, rely on to be able to go and um, spend some time uh, outside, you know, tending tending the gardens that they've had. Maybe some of us have had, had gardens for only a year or two. Some of, some of us have had gardens for a lot longer, and so even just the the, the the lack of warning, uh, you know, taking that sort of activity away from people during the pandemic has been pretty pretty hard on, on um, a lot of people's um, mental health, that's for sure. It's a really important uh, community initiative, the uh, uh, community garden, which has been going on for, uh, you know, over 40 years. Uh, yeah. The the idea that the uh, children's farm, which was also something that was fought for by the mm. community, or else it wouldn't be mm. there still, be, mm. um, is uh, because they have some sort of plan that they think will uh, help their business model is really unfortunate, isn't it? Yeah, it seems to be a um, a kind of. Uh, conflict between a social enterprise model for community, which is about, you know, um, I guess what I would say is a more like paternalistic approach to community where people get told what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. And the original idea of the garden was allotments where they, uh, you know, would come down, volunteer, keep things running, uh, fix things when they needed fixing. And, um, you know, the, the children's farm is somewhat uh, separate that and, and, it, and it was a garden and an allotment garden that grew up alongside the, the farm and obviously is a part of that farm uh, farmland area down by the Yarra Banks but um, it really doesn't um, have the, the 
same um, sort of remit, I suppose, as the children's farm itself, especially as it's being run today. And, and that's the issue is that it feels like we're being treated like um, tenants, you know, like renters, essentially, who have been told, um, oh, we're, you know, we're, we're repossessing the, the property you've been leasing, so you need to get out and that's it. But, it, you know, not even that because we weren't even allowed to grab our stuff before we were locked out, essentially. It's pretty outrageous, superfluous yeah. to requirements. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It feels very, um, uh, well, to be honest, it feels like the opposite of community to us, that's for sure. So um, the plan now is to take and gather the, the petition that we've been running um, in, in the time um, since we've been locked out. So there's about 3,000 signatories of a petition we've had online um, on a megaphone petition and deliver that to the committee of management hopefully the next week or so um, at a, an event online which they would um, you know, hopefully uh, want to attend and we've invited Richard Wynn's office to come down to that uh, meeting as well as well as the federal member for Melbourne um, and then obviously the local councillors and Stephen Jolly's told me he'd, he'll definitely be there so um, there'll be an event that we'll will um, publicise in the next few days uh, with a time and date for a public um, presentation of the of the petition, um, which basically only has three um, three de- three key demands, which is to re- reinstate access to the garden, to address any safety issues, and um, to allow uh, the garden to 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 thrive. That was a report there um, from. Annie uh, on Solidarity Breakfast uh, speaking to uh, Giles um, Filke about saving the Collingwood Community Gardens and if you would like to know more about that campaign and show your support there is a megaphone petition and we'll pop the link into our show notes uh, later today. Yeah and what a fantastic show it's been. I really enjoyed um, the interview with Dr. Patricia Reynolds. Yes, um, and actually, if you would like to um, listen to another 3CR show that looked at um, the injustices of global vaccine distribution, Think Again had a report on that, uh, which you can listen to online. Amazing. Well, that's all we have time for today, but it's been a pleasure hosting the Monday Breakfast with you, Fong, and thank you so much to all of our listeners. Thank you, Jacob. Um, Stay tuned for Women on the Line after this and join me again with my lovely co-presenters tomorrow morning for Tuesday breakfast at 7 a.m. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.